Kia ora. you're listening to a Coalesce Produce podcast, PhD Unpacked. But I think that a lot of mental health professionals go, oh, what if I ask a client and they're offended by that in some way, you know? But if we really dig into that, right, it's kind of going, oh, I don't want to offend straight cis people. A podcast where we unpack a PhD thesis over the course of 30 minutes. You know, if you're kind of there going, is this a safe place for me to be? And someone's got a little rainbow button or a little rainbow sign or a rainbow lanyard, like you're going to clock it and kind of go, okay, this is telling me something. At PhD Unpacked, we're focused on bridging the gap between research by academics and community experiences in New Zealand. Not everyone has the time to read through a 100,000 word thesis, so we decided to sit down with the authors themselves and breeze through the tidbits and juicy details without all the academic jargon. That may mean that at certain points during the episode, I'll summarize what both James and the author have said. Speaking of which, as well as hearing my voice, you'll hear the voice of the host, James. Kia James and the team have read through the entire thesis to ensure that we ask the right questions and get to the core of why this is important to Aotearoa. I'm Yelena, and I'll be the narrator throughout the seven-part series and beyond. While James was in the room with the interviewees, I'll be sitting beside you, like that one friend watching their favourite movie, who chimes in every now and again, fills in the gaps, and makes sure you don't miss any of the good bits, or laughs at James' expense. Whenever you hear the podcast beats... You know I'm about to come in and say something profound, life-changing, and hopefully meaningful. Today we're joined by Dr. Gloria Fraser to discuss her thesis, Rainbow Experiences of Accessing Mental Health Support in Aotearoa, New Zealand, a community-based mixed-method study. Gloria is a clinical psychologist and research fellow for Te Waka, Victoria University of Wellington. Previously, she's worked in various support roles for Youthline New Zealand, Work and Income, the Anxiety Trust New Zealand, and local feminist organisations. As with everything, the why is central to our understanding, so we start the corridor off with James and Gloria talking about why she chose to do this particular PhD. First off, can you tell us briefly how and why you ended up writing this PhD specifically? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess there are a couple of kind of avenues to this research. On a personal note, I've got a bit of a background in kind of feminist organising and activism. And when I got involved in the feminist world and was doing stuff for women, I guess, I got a lot of questions about whether my feminism included all women. And so there was this big kind of intersection of feminist spaces and queer spaces and a focus on kind of intersectionality. And so that got me really interested in gender and sexuality and sex characteristic diversity. And alongside that, I started training as a clinical psychologist and I started my training and sort of realised that we didn't really get much teaching about kind of rainbow mental health or um, sexuality and gender and I thought it seemed like a bit of a gap and so I had a look at the research and there just wasn't very much in New Zealand and my queer and trans friends were telling me that it was quite hard for them to kind of access support and when they did it didn't always go how they wanted it to so I kind of thought someone should look into this. The first thing I did was actually met with a lot of community organisations and asked them if it was a good idea because I think the worst thing you can do is a PhD that isn't actually going to help anybody. Um, So I kind of said, look, I have this idea and this is what I'm thinking of doing and what do you guys reckon? And everybody was really keen on it. So I guess that process of kind of consultation did take a while before I really kind of settled on the topic and 
yeah, and kind of honed into what exactly I'd be doing. Now it's been a hot minute, but we are back with the definition section. Now starting with the co-papa of the PhD, Rainbow Experiences, the first question is, how does Gloria define rainbow communities? And how does she use different umbrella terms? Before we go any further, I want to add for the record that I go by she, her pronouns, so please address any fan mail accordingly. The, the first place to start is that there's lots of different umbrella terms that we can use to talk about the same group, like rainbow, LGBTQIA+, um, minority sexualities and genders, sexuality, gender, sex characteristic, diverse, queer, trans, intersex. There's all of these words that um, are pretty much interchangeable and, and the words that people use sort of depend on their kind of personal preference and experience and their kind of political stance and all that kind of thing. Now with words in general, usage evolves over time. I mean, if somebody told 13-year-old me that swag and scucks were going to become non-ironic parts of my vocab, I'd tell them they were delusional. But anyway, we asked her how queer and LGBTQI plus had changed over time and how young people were defining their own gender and sexuality today. So queer, for example, is an umbrella term that has been reclaimed, but a lot of older people in the community still experience that to be a slur, so don't kind of use it to self-identify. Um, with LGBTQIA+, that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, agender, plus, 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 plus. Um, and the reason that in some ways that's fallen out of favour a bit is that there are so many kind of identities that are in the plus that don't get named and it's also a real mouthful um, and so the reason that I tended to use rainbow is that it's really inclusive um, it is kind of quick to say and use and especially in New Zealand um, lots of people are inc increasingly using that. I think also interesting, I work with lots of young people now clinically and young people are actually defining their sexualities and genders kind of less and less. So I think there's also this a bit of a move past these kind of labels. With um, te reo Māori, the word that we have is taktāpui, which is kind of means like rainbow, but in te reo Māori there's so much less of this need to have a million different terms for lots of different identities and taktāpui is kind of a term that's like held space for that for a long time just by itself. So I do think it's a pretty kind of Pākehā thing to go, we need to break down these identities into lots of very specific things. Now to quickly break down some terms, cisgender is essentially the term we use for those who identify as the sex they were assigned at birth. This being the one that the doctor assigned to us based on our genitalia at the time. Now it's actually a bit more complicated than that, but simply put, if you were thought to be a boy at birth, and you grow up thinking of yourself as a boy, then you are cisgender. In contrast, gender fluid and genderqueer can be defined as the following. Gender fluid would mean that your gender kind of shifts and changes over time. Um, so that might mean that it happens, you know, kind of really quickly, multiple times a day or day to day, or it might be that it shifts and changes over a longer period of time, but that is kind of, yeah, something that's moving. And genderqueer, I think of as an umbrella term a bit like non-binary, so not sort of describing yourself as a man or a woman. But genderqueer is sort of similar to the use of queer with sexuality, so it's sort of like something that is not in the usual kind of cisgender norms. And just before we get back into the interview, the last couple important definitions are cisnormativity and heteronormativity. 
So cisnormativity is kind of like a system where people are expected to be cisgender or where it's thought that they should be cisgender. So you'd see that just in, I guess, um, little things around the world that assume that there's only kind of men or women and that that fits with your assigned sex at birth. So an example of cisnormativity might be like not having an all-gender bathroom. So heteronormativity, if you have people talking about parents and they always talk about mum and dad, you know, not thinking about the fact that families can be made up in lots and lots of different ways. Or if you meet somebody and they're a man and you say, do you have a girlfriend? That's heteronormative because you haven't allowed for the fact that they might have a different kind of sexuality. But I think the important thing with any of these terms is that like, I could sit and define them all day long, but it's really individual to the person. And so people kind of choose the term that fits for them, but also that different people might define them differently and no one is more right or wrong than anyone else. Absolutely. This yeah. is Dr. Gloria Fraser's understanding of yeah. these terms. Yeah. And yet yeah. it is your PhD, so it's helpful to know the way in which you understand this yeah. this terminology. Yeah. But I, yeah, I guess in my research and even in my clinical work, you know, if somebody tells me a term that they that, you know, they describe themselves as, I still ask them usually what it means for them. Like bisexual is a good one, right? For some people, bisexual means that they are attracted to men and to women. For other people, bisexual means that they're attracted to people of all genders. And so it's still important to go, what does this term mean for you in your life? Before we dive into the findings, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the participants within your PhD, the research, the process, how mm. you undertook uh, the work itself. Yeah, sure. So I guess my questions that I had at the core of my PhD were, the rainbow people in New Zealand, How? what is their experience of accessing mental health support? Because there was very little out there to actually say what that was like. So anecdotally, I'd heard that it could be a really difficult thing to do and that mental health professionals might not always have a lot of knowledge around kind of rainbow identities and issues. And so that was the first question is kind of what happens when people go and seek mental health support and so I just started by interviewing people. I interviewed young adults and the reason for that is the rainbow community is already so diverse in terms of kind of identity and I didn't want to limit any particular kind of identities so I thought I kind of had to narrow it down in another way just to make it manageable. So I think I interviewed 16 to 30 year olds and I was kind of up at night worried that nobody would want to talk to me because in qualitative research it's actually notoriously difficult to get participants. Rainbow people are a really over-researched group and so justifiably a lot of people are like, oh my god, another research study, you know, I don't want to deal with this. Also, I'm not in the rainbow community myself and so I had all of these worries about what does it mean for me as a straight and cis woman to be doing this research and am I doing it right and am I asking the right questions, am I doing it respectfully. So I did all this community collaboration with different organisations and figured out that I was asking the right questions and then kind of started advertising and first interviewed 34 people. So the first part was sort of about hearing people's stories and getting really rich accounts of what it was like to access mental health support as a rainbow person. And then the second bit was saying, do the experiences of these 34 people, are they shared by a much wider group? And so we ended up, I think, getting a little over 1,500 people um, filling out that survey, which was really exciting. And we were also able to widen the age range. So it started at 14 and had no upper age limit. Cool. So let's get into the findings a little bit. Mm. And I guess to to set the scene, the mental health landscape in New Zealand is 
I guess to put it lightly and, and perhaps in your own terms, overstretched and underfunded. For the most part, I think people are becoming more aware of how the sector is struggling to cope uh, for both the rainbow community and people outside the rainbow community. And you write a lot about the search for rainbow friendly places and how this manifests in sort of a micro sense and a macro sense. Can you speak about that search, the search for rainbow friendly spaces and how that was sort of presented in, in the interviews that you had? When So when people are accessing support, you know, a lot of the time rainbow people access support for exactly the same reason as anybody else, right? Anxiety, depression, life stress, trauma, relationships, whatever else. For some people, they are accessing support specifically around identity, but not always. So it's not so much that people are kind of seeking affirmation and validation. It's just that they want good health care. And then in order to get the good health care, also your identities have to be kind of affirmed and validated, right? Or if the opposite is happening, then it's obviously going to get in the way of getting the support that you need. And I guess the way I understood it is that we have made lots of progress, um, you know, over time, but we still live in an environment that isn't always friendly and supportive of rainbow people. And so when people go to mental health services, they can't be 100% sure that they're going to be met with somebody who accepts them as they are and kind of celebrates their identity and is going to validate that and meet their needs. So I argue that there is a need for mental health professionals to explicitly show their clients that they're rainbow friendly. Can you speak to the, I guess, the diversity of the experiences of specific people Mm. and how that contends with, I guess, the themes that were shared by people? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the big themes, regardless of who I was talking to, it was pretty hard to get support. And that was pretty much across the board. Unless somebody got really lucky, they really had to fight to get the support they needed. So that's kind of shared. And I um, I don't think that that's actually unique to rainbow people. Um, but for rainbow people, the kind of services they can reasonably go to do become limited because not everybody is clued up on rainbow issues and kind of a safe place to go to. So you've already got that kind of limited access. And then the things that were really common were around, you know, mental health professionals kind of making assumptions about people's identities so that question I said earlier of you know do you have a boyfriend when a woman walks in automatically someone goes wow you haven't even thought about the fact that I might not be straight can I now come out to you safely you know or just those little things people also experienced a real lack of knowledge on the part of mental health professionals around their kind of identities and experiences and so lots of people ended up having to educate their mental health professionals in order to kind of get the care they needed And then that can be really time consuming. And so you've already got less access to support because you're spending time kind of educating your therapist. In terms of how it differed between people, some people were able to do things like access private support and had the resources to do that. And they talked about that as being a really lucky thing where they circumvented a lot of the difficulties of the public system. Also, gender diverse people had... I guess, other barriers in terms of accessing gender-affirming healthcare, and that was something that I got really interested in in my PhD, is what is the mental health professional's role in gender-affirming healthcare? Should we even have that role? You know, what does that look like? That kind of thing. I'm fascinated by how you managed to approach what is an incredibly diverse community <laughs> and wanting to get examples across the board of all the, d- the different stories. Mm. But I guess one thing that we can look at is the way that you describe this this idea of sort of, for lack of a better term, a, a negative mm. mental health experience. Can you speak to some of the elements that might 
go into that. You know, mm. things that uh, people who you interview, interviewed spoke about, uh, I guess just examples of mental health support or lack of support that made them not feel safe, not feel uh, trust in, in the people that they mm. were there to seek support from. I guess just some elements of this idea of, of a negative mental health experience that you can share to extend the words of the people who you interviewed and, and the things that they have experienced that people might not realize they experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is we know that you can't tell what somebody's sexual orientation or gender is by looking at them, right? Well, hopefully we know that. For those who don't know that, you can't tell someone's sexuality or gender by looking at them. So it means that when a client comes into a mental health space, they have this job to do, right? Of kind of sharing what their identity is because we still live in a society that will assume people to be straight or cisgender unless kind of said otherwise. But lots of mental health professionals don't ask that question. So then people are left going, how do I do this? Do I come out to you and kind of see how you react and then not come back if it's bad? Do I kind of drop hints and see if you pick up on them? Do I casually weave it into a story? Do I wait till I've seen you a few times and then figure out if I trust you and then tell you? So there's all this work around kind of coming out. And so I started asking people, you know, should we just be asking as, as part of our usual kind of questions, you know? And some people were like, that would be so good because if someone just asked me about my sexuality, it would show that they hadn't assumed who I am and it would open it up for me to actually answer. But other people said that that would actually be really confronting because if you meet someone and they ask you that question, you might not know if you trust them yet. That might feel like a really personal thing to share. You might not know what they're going to do with that information. And so straightforwardly asking might not be so comfy either. But people came up with all of these different things that mental health professionals can do to make it a more kind of safe and comfortable space. So things like having kind of visual signs of support, so kind of like rainbow posters or kind of banners or having all gender bathrooms and making sure when you're filling out forms that it doesn't say gender, male or female, but has something that's more inclusive. Also in the questions that people ask using that really inclusive language. So do you have a partner or partners rather than do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a girlfriend and just kind of showing in that way that they haven't made assumptions also sharing and checking pronouns is a big one so you know kia ora, i'm gloria i use she her pronouns how do you want me to refer to you that kind of stuff kia ora, I'm, I'm james i use he him pronouns i guess it's this idea of being proactive right mm. and that when you approach uh, mental health professionals and you're seeking support the expectation is that you won't have to work that hard. I mean, you maybe have to share aspects of your personal life and things that you're struggling with, but people shouldn't have to do so much of the work when they're going out and seeking support. Yeah. Most yeah. of it should sort of be coming back in the other direction. When it's already hard, right? You're already meeting a stranger, having them ask you personal questions about your life, being really vulnerable, sharing probably your most painful thoughts and feelings, and then you have to do all this work on top of that to go... Am I even safe to be who I am here? Um, and I think that sometimes mental health professionals, and I think I've been guilty of this too, can kind of go, well, I'm a psychologist. Of course I'm trustworthy. People can trust me. They'll show up and they'll just open up and that's how it goes. And I think sometimes we don't think about the fact that we actually have to earn people's trust and do that in a continuous way in order for people to feel like they can open up. Especially as seeking mental health support is kind of a continuous relationship, right? It's not a 
you walk in, you meet someone for the first time and all of a sudden it either works or it doesn't. It's an yeah. ideally as an, as an ongoing relationship where trust is built and, and both parties feel safe and you work towards a relationship that ultimately leads to the support that yeah. that person is, is seeking out. And I guess it doesn't all have to happen right away immediately, mm. but there are some things that, you know, how, how quickly do we make impressions? Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe our system isn't actually set up for some of the trust that, that it can take, you know. When I meet people in my job and I'm expected to do an assessment in an hour and a half, um, someone might not feel comfortable in an hour and a half to disclose an, a trauma that happened to them or to tell me about a really sensitive thing. But the system has this expectation that I'll be able to kind of gather that information in that time. So I also think that if we're thinking from a system reform perspective, it's like how do we kind of build in time for people to actually build trust? I guess time is a really crucial word because it's it's also about the the time that it takes to access the support. And mm. there's some elements of your PhD that touches on this this idea that kind of the waiting can be detrimental, yeah. particularly yeah. when you may be seeking out mental health support that relates to identity. And it's really hard to have to to wait to have those those discussions. Mm. I guess in contrast to the, this idea of uh, a negative mental health experience, mm. there are examples within your research of what a positive experience yeah. looks like. Could you touch on some some elements, some stories that people you interviewed uh, mentioned of positive elements of what a mental health experience can look like when maybe it goes well? Yeah, I think that when people had positive experiences, they had worked with therapists who'd found this really nice balance between not making assumptions about who they are and what their experience had been. And at the same time, they had a bit of education about about kind of rainbow identities in general. So they were able to say, you know, you don't have to kind of educate me about what it means to be bisexual or, you know, what gender dysphoria is, but I am going to be curious about what this is like for you and be really open to whatever that is. Um, so they talked about professionals who were completely non-judgmental, um, who allowed them to kind of guide what was spoken about. Or sometimes mental health professionals will focus in on rainbow identities even when that's not what the person's there to talk about and sort of make this assumption that, oh, you must be sad because you're bisexual or, you know, you must be anxious because you're transgender. And I think that goes back to kind of old ideas in our profession around kind of pathologization of gender diversity and sexuality where, you know, homosexuality was considered a mental illness in my profession for a really long time which is a completely frightening and disgusting concept, but we're not actually that far away from that in terms of years. So I think there's still remnants of that kind of trickling through. And as you've said, there can be really simple uh, visual clues that can mm -hmm. contribute to a positive experience. I went to a, a general practice recently, which I won't name, but it was in Wellington and just a tiny, like it was probably five centimetres by five centimetres rainbow flag in the yeah. window. And it's amazing how those visual clues can actually just be really impactful. Yeah. And as you mentioned, there's a combination of, I guess, the, the mental health professionals that you might speak to when seeking support, but the, the non-face-to-face indicators of uh, a space being rainbow-friendly. Mm. Lots of contributing factors, some maybe seemingly small, some seemingly large, but there are lots of different versions of what a positive experience can look like. And, you know, people did detail what those look like yeah. in, in the study. And, and people scan for things that are relevant to them, right? Like that's how our brain works. So, you know, a lot of straight people might miss those wee little 
rainbow clothes, right? But, um, you know, if you're kind of there going, is this a safe place for me to be? And someone's got a little rainbow button or a little rainbow sign or a rainbow land, like, lanyard, like you're going to clock it and kind of go, okay, this is telling me something. There are some amazing stats, uh, all presented beautifully. We definitely recommend <laughs> going and finding the, the PhD online because it's a joy to look at. But some some amazing uh, stats and graphs that, that show, I guess, the experiences of the, the people that you surveyed. And again, unfortunately, we don't have time to, to go into <laughs> them. But to, to give the, the audience an example, you know, asking gender on a form, displaying visual supports, checking pronouns, these questions of, you know, was this helpful or not helpful or extremely helpful? You know, were you asked your own understanding of identity? You know, did you did you feel like the mental health professional focused on topics you'd come to discuss? You know, there are so many fantastic little bits of, of statistical information in your PhD, which I'd love to go into, but are there any sort of key stats that you found really, really fascinating or some that surprised you or any, I guess, singular response that was particularly impactful within all that uh, data that you uncovered from the survey? Mm. I think the one number that really stuck with me was around gender-affirming healthcare and access to hormone therapy. So if people had access to hormone therapy, I asked them on average, how long did it take? Or I asked for each person, how long did it take between you first requesting hormones and then receiving them for the first time Um, and the average was 47 weeks which is nearly a year so that wasn't like the longest time that was the average time and I thought that was really heartbreaking and I think just points to how much work we have to do in our system because we know that when people need gender affirming healthcare and don't get it that has such detrimental effects to their mental well-being. I guess the next question is, is what can we learn from all this? What are the, the some of the tangible takeaways? You've got this amazing resource within the PhD uh, called Supporting Aotearoa's Rainbow People, a practical guide for mental health professionals. Could, could you tell us about some of the key takeaways for professionals, what needs work, some elements of the resource that you suggest kind of going forward? Yeah. The resource doesn't start with this, but I'd actually probably start with self-reflection. You know, like for those of us who are in majority groups, especially around kind of gender and sexuality, we spend very little time reflecting on our own identity. Um, so that can be a cool way to start to go, hmm, how would I describe my sexuality? How would I describe my gender? How do I know that that's the case? What kind of experiences around that have I had? What are my own kind of beliefs and, and thoughts about people in the rainbow community? Am I friends with rainbow people? what's that like? If I'm not, why not? You know, doing a bit of that kind of work on where you sit first. And then there's just lots of really little things that you can do that I think just make you a more kind of rainbow friendly person in general. Like that pronouns thing that I was talking about, really basic, but you know, you can even put pronouns on your LinkedIn profile now. You can have them in your email signature. Instagram too as well. Instagram I think made too, that a default yeah. Thing. yeah. Yeah, so there's all sorts of things that you can do to just kind of go, hey, I've thought about the fact that it's not just straight and cis people that exist and you know, I'm here and I want to learn and I want to make the world a safe place for you. And I think another one, and this goes for, like you're saying, mental health professionals, but also just people more generally. Mm. I think that when 
terms are fast moving and when people feel like there's kind of communities where they don't have a lot of understanding about what's going on there can be this tendency to go well I it's better if I just don't say anything or do anything or get involved because I might get it wrong and I do think that that's what gets in the way for a lot of mental health professionals if I start a conversation about sexuality and it goes in a direction where I don't know what I'm doing what if I do more harm than if I'd never brought it up at all and I think that that's a real mistake like I think there's a lot to be said for trying to be helpful with good intentions and those are learned behaviors like it's all about practice right the Mm. only way that these uh, practices are going to become as commonplace as they need to be is if people actively challenge themselves to ask questions like what are your pronouns and not being afraid to make mistakes, obviously learning from mm. your mistakes if you make them. I definitely know that I have in the last couple of years. And yet challenging yourself to, I guess, do things that you might feel uncomfortable in case you make a mistake yeah. and realizing that the the discomfort that you will feel is nothing in comparison to the discomfort that someone perhaps from the rainbow community might feel yeah. if you don't ask that question. Definitely, yeah. And I've had some really uncomfortable conversations, you know, like when you go someone what's your pronouns and they're like give you this really frightened like what's going on kind of look and then you end up in a big kind of conversation about pronouns and that's really great but I think that a lot of mental health professionals go oh what if I ask a client and they're offended by that in some way you know but if we really dig into that right it's kind of going I don't want to offend straight cis people so I'm not going to ask but as you said you know the consequence for our rainbow clients of not doing that is really big. A recurring theme and question that we ask on the show is, is where's the hope? Because a lot of PhDs can focus on some quite hard-hitting stuff. Sure, they Mm. might shine the light on aspects of society and culture that we think need changing, but uh, there is hope, and there is hope within your PhD. And and always in research, there are are pockets of of positives to look towards. Let's talk about that a little bit. Where's the hope from your PhD that you found when you wrote it? I guess the hope that you see now in in 2021, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess maybe a few years on from it. I'd love to hear what fills you with hope as you think about this research generally. Yeah, the hope is that lots and lots and lots of mental health professionals are doing an awesome job and there and there is quite a bit of talk of that in the thesis and that was always so cool to hear and I talked to people who described the mental health professionals as life-saving and life-changing and just talked about them with so much gratitude and that was really really awesome. The other thing that fills me with hope is that while there is a lot um, to kind of learn and, and change I guess in mental health settings a lot of the big things um things that have big impact are things that are relatively easy to do Um, and they're also skills that mental health professionals already have and just need to kind of tweak a little bit for this setting so mental health professionals already know how to not make assumptions how to ask open-ended questions how to do some kind of naive inquiry and it's just about going into that that sexuality and gender area and doing it kind of with a bit of background knowledge and one thing that I would suggest that reading the PhD sort of went off like a light bulb to me as hope is I guess just fundamentally the fact that you spoke to people from the rainbow community who had had positive experiences like they do exist and I remember when we'd spoken previously you you talked about this idea that if we know that the positive experiences exist it is okay to walk away from an experience mm. that 
has not been positive. Now, sometimes that might be really difficult because you might have a wait time to then Mm. find alternate support, which we know is an issue. But you mentioned, you know, that validation that it is okay to walk away from an experience that doesn't meet the needs that you have because we know from the study that positive experiences do exist out there. Yeah, definitely. And and it's not just walking away from a negative experience, eh, which, you know, hopefully people can do. But also sometimes you see a therapist and you just don't gel. And there's nothing wrong with them and there's nothing wrong with you. You're just two people that don't quite connect. Um, because mental health professionals are people and not all people get along. And so there is something to be said for therapist fit as well. Um, so I think that sometimes people go see someone, it doesn't kind of feel right and they go, oh, maybe therapy's not for me, um, when actually maybe they just need to find a different person. And, and like you say, that is tricky in a system where we do have so many kind of access difficulties. But aspirationally, mental health services should be allowing for that. They should be going, okay, you didn't gel with this person why don't you try and see this one and see how it goes? Is there anything right now today that has really changed in your perspective, say compared to, I don't know, the the first day when you started your research mm. or the day that you published it? Is there anything that uh, has changed, I guess, in the way that you view this study as a whole? Yeah, I've started practicing clinically. And so all of a sudden I am on the other side of it And I think that it has given me so much more perspective into what it's like for mental health professionals to be trying to do this work because we, you know, like you said, we do work in this underfunded, overstretched system. And sometimes you're working in so much kind of crisis that finding room for cultural competency training is really tough. And so I kind of have that perspective, which I think brings a little bit more kind of gentleness, I think, for my colleagues. I guess in your case, with your research specifically, your positioning to the Mm. work is at the core of the discussion and how you relate to the subject matter. And and you're you're super clear and transparent about that Mm. within the PhD. But to finish off, I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of positioning and and Mm. reflexivity. And one thing that has been recognized by many PhD academics is is that, you know, doing a PhD is a privileged thing. You know, it's an opportunity that some people don't have access to. And I guess when one is researching or reflecting on a wider group or a community, the responsibility to do justice to that community is kind Mm. of ever-present. What's so interesting about your PhD from an authorship perspective is that, as you've said, you don't immediately identify with the community that you're researching. uh, And you've made it clear in your research that you identify as straight and cis, and you mentioned, you know, that you occupy this space as an insider-outsider, which I'm super interested to un- unpack. And I think this is this is fascinating, how you relate to the research and the difficulties that you mention in the PhD about how you position to the subject matter. Can you tell us a little bit about that, this, the struggle to embark on this PhD, I guess how you feel about that now, and mm. this concept of insider-outsider? Yeah. Yeah, so I I knew that I um, wanted to do a PhD and that I would have the time to do a PhD and the funding to do a PhD, which, as you say, already puts me in a position of a lot of privilege. And so I wanted to do something that was meaningful. All PhDs are meaningful, but I think they vary in the extent to which they can have immediate practical significance. And and that was something that was going to be important for me. 
Like I needed something that was going to get me out of bed in the morning and where I could kind of see it having impact. So I had all of these ideas about doing kind of rainbow mental health research, but am I the right person to do this? Because um, straight cis people have done a lot of damage to rainbow communities in general, but specifically in research. Um, So historically, rainbow people have been almost like research subjects. And a lot of the research has been really stigmatizing and has really taken away from them and kind of not given anything back. We see lots of parallels in research with Māori, for example, where people go into Māori communities and ask their questions and leave. And the community's like, well, I've just given you all of my time. And what have I got back? You know, and there's this big kind of power imbalance. At the same time, I kind of thought, if I have all of this time and space to do this work, then is it fair for it to be on the shoulders of rainbow people to do it? Or should I be using, you know, this privilege for good, basically? And so this was a tension that I came up against all the way through. And when you ask how it is now, like, it's still it's still not totally resolved and uncomfortable because... It's always this balance of trying not to speak on behalf of people, but to kind of pass the mic to them. Um, But in doing so, you kind of necessarily have to do a bit of the speaking. Like even now, I'm doing a podcast about rainbow identities as a straight cis lady. Like it's, you know, I wouldn't go as far as say it's questionable, but it's something to be thoughtful about. I like to come from the perspective that most people operate from a place of good intentions. That's the way that I like to see the world. So I think it's, it's just that thoughtfulness, eh? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Um, what impact might this be having? Am I taking on feedback when I'm getting it and incorporating that in? And when thinking about kind of marginalised communities, when people do give me feedback, do I believe it and run with it, you know, or do I argue? And sometimes privilege is uncomfortable and we get defensive. A big thank you to Gloria for coming on to PhD Unpacked and having a chat with us. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of the resource that Gloria developed through her PhD. It can be downloaded for free along with rainbow-friendly posters that can be placed wherever. That link is in the bio for this episode. On the next episode of PhD Unpacked, we talk to Dr. Vanessa Scholes about her PhD, You Are Not Worth the Risk. The Ethics of Statistical Discrimination in Organisational Selection of Applicants. So in this case you would have been discriminated against on the basis of statistics for a group of which you're a member, namely the group of people who smoke, regardless of your personal productivity. I mean, you might happen to be a very productive worker. So this is statistical discrimination in the hiring context, just being treated differently due to group risk statistics. To keep up to date with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce are producing, head to at CoalesceNZ on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PhD Unpacked on Instagram. And before I go, big love to Wellington Access Radio for the interview spot. I hope you enjoyed this ASMR. Ma te wa.